Amen. I'd like to invite you to open your Bible to the book of Titus. It's about halfway through your New Testament. Just find all the T's, Thessalonians and Timothy and Titus. You'll, you'll find it. Find the book of Titus. It's probably about two pages, two and a half pages, three little chapters. Uh, this is, for those who are just jumping in to the series we're in, this is the third part of our ongoing series in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. We ended 2 Timothy last Sunday. We're starting Titus today. These three books are sometimes called the PE, the pastoral epistles, because the Apostle Paul was used by the Holy Spirit to write these letters to two pastors. Timothy, serving as a pastor of a church just like this in the city of Ephesus, and to Titus, serving as a pastor of a church just like this on the island of Crete. And so those three letters are called the pastoral epistles, but just like we did when we started 1 Timothy, for those who remember, we were on Sunday afternoons in another part of the city, we read the whole letter. And then when we started 2 Timothy, we were still meeting in the afternoons in another place, we read the whole letter. Well, guess what we're about to do today? The book of Titus, three chapters, 16, 15, 15. That's how many verses are in each chapter. We're going to read the whole thing. I'm actually going to scoot myself over to the side a little bit. It'll be projected, I believe, if our technology agrees with us. Hey, and you can follow along here or you can follow along in your Bible. I'm reading from the New American Standard, and I absolutely guarantee you this will be the best part of my sermon. So here we go. Listen to this God-breathed book that's aimed right at your soul. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested, even his word. In the proclamation which was entrusted, uh, pardon me, in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth to the pure all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. Being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed, chapter 2. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior. 
not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you, chapter three. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Verse three, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for all men, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned, Verse 12, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask his blessing as we dive into the first four verses of this letter. Oh, Father, help us now, having heard your word, not to be like the person who walks away and forgets what we saw, but rather, Lord, massage the truth of this word, indeed, your own character, into our soul, Take the truth of who you are, which is revealed in your word written about your word incarnate, your son, our savior. Take your truth and plant it deep in our soul and cause it to bear fruit to your glory, to our own good, and for the benefit of those around us. Make us more like Christ as a result of what you show to us today. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm gonna scoot myself back over. So today, you'll be encouraged to know that I have fewer notes than normal. So congratulations on that. 
I have two things I'd like us to see in the first four verses. My main objective is already accomplished. One, to read this book in your hearing. Um, Paul commanded Timothy, when churches gather, do three things. Pray, preach, and read the Bible. Uh, so sometimes we in our Western culture get a little outraged. Uh, the generation before us wanted to get prayer back in school and get Bible back in school. I'm not opposed to either one of those things. I'd just like to get more prayer, more Bible in church. So uh, praise God for mission accomplished. We've read the Bible. We've obeyed what Paul told Timothy must happen every single time the church gathers. You must, quote, publicly read the scripture. We don't have to read a whole book, but that's what would have happened on the island of Crete when Titus got this letter. Paul sent it to him. He was on an island. If you can picture the boot of Italy going down into the Mediterranean Sea. If you're looking at a map, just go to your right and you'll see Greece sticking down into the Mediterranean Sea. And underneath that, you'll see a long skinny island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. That's where Titus was. When he got the letter that you just heard, he read it out loud to the church. So congratulations, you've just enjoyed what the Greek island people enjoyed in the first century. But for today, as we begin this journey, I wanna pull out the hello, the greeting that Paul gives to Titus. It's actually his second longest greeting in the whole Bible. The longest is in Romans where he says, Paul, a lot of stuff to the Romans. The second longest is Titus. Paul, a lot of stuff to Titus. The third longest is Galatians by about half as long as Titus and all the rest are really short. When he says hello, you don't have to say hello like this every single time you talk to a Christian, but you should absolutely conceive of the other person this way if you and they are Christians. And when you greet a fellow Christian, God means to step in between you and them and saturate your relationship with an awareness of how glorious he is and how good he has been to you both in Christ. That's what Paul does for Titus. So the two things I'd like us to see are verses one to three and then verse four. Verse one to three is the stuff. Verse four is to Titus. In verses one to three, if there's ever been a Grace Church titled sermon point, this has got to be it. You ready? Verses one to three, greetings in light of God's God-centered gospel. Now, I said, if there's ever a Grace Church sounding sermon point title, that's got to be it, right? Big God theology, God, God-centered, gospel. I packed it all into one, one sermon point, right? That's, that's like all our words that we use here. And sometimes we cannot even hear them. So can you pretend you've never heard them for about the next 10 minutes? And see if what you hear in the next 10 minutes helps you understand those words. God-centered God. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Is he about to tell me that God is the most God-centered person in the universe? Yep. Is he about to tell me that that's good? Yes. Is he about to tell me that that's what the gospel is all about? Yes. Greetings in light of God's God-centered good gospel. Gospel literally means good news. That's verses one to three. Let's step into it for just a moment. I admit that I tried to whittle down that little title and I'm sure there's a lot of other faithful ways to say it. But that's what verses one to three are all about. Saying hello to another Christian in light, fully aware of, completely conscious of, very glad about 
the goodness of God's God-centered gospel. That's how Christians say hello to each other. That's what we find in verses 1 to 3. Take a look at these verses. I just try to show you some of God's God-centeredness in God's very good gospel. Look at verse 1. Paul was not God's slave. Paul was God's happy slave, bondservant. It's very God-centered. Verse 1, Paul was sent by and for Jesus Christ. Both directions, by him and for him. That's what the word apostle means. Verse 1, Paul's ministry was for the faith of a particular subset of humans. The elect, the chosen, the individually selected people that God set his affection on from eternity past. Paul was sent for their faith. Verse 1, the content of Paul's message was not people. It was God. God's truth. Verse 1, truly knowing God and his truth leads to something. What does it lead to? You can see it in verse 1. Godliness. A God-saturated life is the result of knowing God. That's as God-centered as it can possibly get. Verse 2, eternal life is grounded somewhere. Where is it grounded? Eternal life is the fruit. What's the root? The verse tells you. Eternal life is grounded in the promises of God. Verse 2, God is incapable of being inconsistent with God. God cannot not be God. And because God cannot not be God, God therefore cannot lie. He can't be dishonest. He can't be disingenuous. He can't lack integrity. God is a truth teller. He can't lie. Verse 2, the fulfillment of God's promises depend on, hmm, wait for it, God. They were made known to you. They were, God's promises were made before you existed. Paul just says long ago. So that's verse 1 and 2. Doesn't get much more God-centered than that, but verse 3 is added, so let's see what it has. When God was pleased to do it, God manifested God's promises. How did God do that? God raised up people like Paul to, quote, proclaim his word concerning Jesus. And then verse 3, those who proclaim God's truth do so because God, interestingly, he says the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, two persons of the one triune God, and he calls God our Savior. The reason people proclaim God's truth is because God commanded them to do it. That's where I get the title of the first point. God's God-centered gospel is the aquarium in which Paul says hello to Titus. And Paul wants Titus to know that when he greets him, when he says, hello, how are you doing? It's been a long time since I've seen you. The first thing Paul wants Titus to know is that he's aware that he and Titus are both united to God. And he wants Titus to remember how it happened. God's God-centered gospel. That's our first point. There's two things I want to try to show about those first three verses. I would love, you know me enough to know if you've been here at all, I would love to ring out more out of every one of these little statements. I just want you to see two things for today's purpose because they're going to be filtered through the rest of this letter. So our other pastors will have an opportunity to ring out a little more. The first thing I want you to see is this hello comes from a real Christian. I want to say it another way. I'm telling you that first because I want you to hear it. It comes from a real Christian. Are you one of these? What is a real Christian? This doesn't make you a Christian. This reveals that you're a Christian. What is a real Christian? Greetings from a man of full surrender. Are you fully surrendered to Christ? That will not make you a Christian. That will show that you are one. Look at verse 1. Greetings from a man of full surrender. Verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. That is both his identity and his assignment. 
That sentence is written by a man who has drawn no lines with God. That sentence is written by a man whose deepest self-awareness is that he does not belong to himself. This is a man who signed the rights to his life away and handed the receipt to Jesus. This is a man who's owned by somebody else and he's happy about it. Bond servant of God, identity, apostle of Jesus Christ, assignment. That word bond servant, it's the Greek word doulos, it means slave. This self-understanding doesn't make Paul a Christian. It shows that he is one. This is the result of belonging to Jesus. I know that we are surrounded by a city full of people who have prayed a prayer to become a Christian. I'm also telling you that biblical Christians are evidenced by full surrender to Jesus. The result of embracing Jesus is drawing no lines with Jesus. He's the Lord. You don't make him Lord. You bow to him as Lord. Bondservant of God. This is the result of embracing one who for us men and for our salvation was the greatest slave of all. Nobody can be proud at the foot of the cross on which hangs the Lord of glory who's suffering for your sin, not his own. The Lord Jesus said of himself, I did not come to be served. I came to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Do you follow that Jesus? When Paul says hi to Titus, the first thing he tells Titus is, I don't belong to myself. My life is not my own. I'm God's slave. I'm his bond slave. I'm his happy slave. I'm glad that God owns me. Are you a person of full surrender? All who know Jesus through faith belong to him and are happy that he's in charge and they're not. So who owns you? In Psalm 104, Moses is God's slave. In the same Psalm, Abraham is God's slave. In Joshua 24, Joshua is God's slave. In Psalm 88, David is God's slave. Isaiah 48, Jacob is God's slave. Do you know the God of Jacob? If so, does he own you? If we were to ask the Apostle Paul, who owns you, he might respond with something very close to the wording of the Heidelberg Catechism. I am not my own. Rather, I belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what bond slave means. So the first thing I wanted us to see is that this greeting comes from a man of full surrender. He's literally writing it from a prison cell because he loves that Savior. So who owns you? Not only his identity, bond slave, but also his assignment. Do you see it, apostle of Jesus Christ? I got another congratulations. First is the best part of the sermon already happened. Second is you're not one of these. There are no more of these. Paul was an apostle, so were some other select men in the first century. There are no more apostles. I understand there's a lot of people that call themselves apostle. I'm saying to you, they are not one. An apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul adds to his self-awareness here. His deepest identity is he doesn't belong to himself but to God. And this deep self-awareness is accompanied by the reality that he not only sees himself as a happy slave to God, but also somebody who is fully surrendered to God's assignment on his life. Are you fully surrendered to God's assignment on your life? I could ask it another way in a way that we might, if we don't say amen, we might say ouch. Is there any command in the Bible that you know for sure God said and you're not obeying it? Paul would say, 
No. I'm not perfect. I'm not sinless. But there is not one command in the Bible that I am consciously disobeying. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle means sent out one. Paul was one of Jesus' apostles. That is, he's one of the men who met the risen Jesus. That was a criteria to be an apostle. So if Jesus of Nazareth walked into your bedroom and told you you're an apostle, then you are one. Otherwise, you're not one. Paul met the risen Jesus. He spent three and a half years with the risen Jesus in the desert of Arabia, relearning the Old Testament that he thought he knew so well when he was a Pharisee. And when Paul greeted Titus, he began with a declaration of his own full surrender. I'm God's slave. And with fear and trembling, he added to that statement of full surrender, I'm also fully embracing his call on my life. I'm his apostle. The second thing I want you to see from verses one to three is not only greetings from a man of full surrender. This is our second aspect of God's God-centered gospel, which is the light underneath which Paul greets Titus. Not only greetings from a man of full surrender, but greetings for the good of your soul. I've come to realize this is, I'm a very slow learner. I honestly believe that's one of the reasons God made me a pastor. It just takes me longer to see things in the Bible that you all see in your devotions in the morning. I need like a whole day. I'm a very slow learner. But one thing I'm learning is that God's assignment for Christians, and I would say in a particular way for pastors, is to try to keep convincing people, I don't want anything from you. I'm not trying to get anything from you. A lot of people are skeptical about church because they think pastors are just a bunch of swindlers. Your pastors are not trying to get anything from you. We're trying to get someone in you. Paul is not only saying, I'm a man of full surrender writing to you, He's also saying, I'm writing for the good of your soul. He didn't want anything from Titus. He wants to get someone into Titus. Greetings for the good of your soul. There's four things I'm going to show you about this greeting for the good of Titus' soul in verses 1 to 3. First, divine election. Second, doctrinal living. Third, heavenly hope. And fourth, promises kept. First, divine election. Do you see it in verse one? I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Four, 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 kata, four, the faith of those chosen of God. Why am I an apostle? I'm an apostle, Jesus the risen Jesus who I met, who knocked me off my horse on the road to Damascus when I was going to persecute Christians, who showed himself to me in the desert of Arabia. He says three times in Galatians, by revelation, by revelation, by revelation, literally Jesus revealed himself to Paul. Paul is saying right now, I'm his apostle for the faith of the elect. My main assignment is to get the faith of the people God has chosen strong. He says a lot of stuff like that a lot of places. He said to Timothy in the previous book we just preached through, for this reason I endure all things. Why do you endure all things, Paul? Why are you writing me a letter from jail? For the sake of those who are chosen. 2 Timothy 2.10. I understand it ruffles feathers. I know it's a very controversial doctrine. I know there's a lot of buzzwords around this theological truth that I'm saying, and I'm not going to say the buzzwords. I probably disagree with the things people hate about the buzzwords. When people say the buzzwords to me, oh, you believe in the doctrine of, and then they put in a buzzword, I just say, tell me what you mean by that. Because I probably also disagree with the things that you hate about that buzzword. What I don't hate and what I want to get into you 
is there is a God and you are not him. It may ruffle your feathers, but it doesn't change the truth of divine election. God chooses people for eternal life, period. And the Bible is clear. He does not choose based on personal merit. We read Romans 9 this morning. I lo- Do you know that we plan the scriptural call to worship passages months in advance? And we plan the sermon text months in advance. You can go pick up a card over there about the next two month sermons. I'm not smart enough to sync those things up. And we read Romans 9 today. That's the scriptural call to worship. It could not have possibly been a better fit for this point. God doesn't choose on the basis of personal merit. What does he choose on the basis of? I'm so glad you asked. His own mercy. Spurgeon put it well. I've quoted it a lot of times. God certainly must have chosen me before I was born because he never would have chosen me after. The doctrine of divine election is replete in the Bible. Literally, do a lucky dip. Just flip anywhere in the Bible, put your finger down, and see if anywhere on those two pages it says something about God being sovereign in the salvation of his people. I'm saying it's so replete in the Bible, you would be hard-pressed to find a page that doesn't have something about it. Jesus meant no words in Matthew 24. Why is he going to cut the persecution of the end time short? To quote Jesus, for the sake of the elect. Who's going to come to Jesus? Who's going to get saved? According to Jesus, John chapter 6, only the people the Father gave him. And he's going to save all of them. When Paul starts preaching the gospel in the Gentile world, Paul's a Jew, by the way. All the other people in the world that are not Jews are Gentiles. That's you. That's me. When Paul starts preaching the gospel in the Gentile world, guess what happened? God starts saving people. Paul goes back to Jerusalem. Guess who lives there? The Jews. Paul tells the Jews in Jerusalem, hey, good news. Guess what? God started saving a bunch of people out there when I just started preaching the gospel about Jesus. Do you know what they said? Acts 13, 48. God has given eternal life. Literally, Acts 11 says he gave the gift of repentance. Gift of repentance from God. Acts 13, 48. As many as has been, I'm going to say this precisely. I stumbled over myself. I got to say it right. As many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. Who believed? Precisely the ones that God appointed to eternal life, Acts 13, 48. You reword that verse, and you start playing with things that you don't want to play with. So Paul is saying, hello, as a man of full surrender to a man that he knows is not a Christian because he's smarter than other people. He's not a Christian because he was a little better than the other guy in his class in the sixth grade. That's not why God saved Titus. Paul is telling Titus, you're a Christian because God is merciful. The first thing I want you to see is divine election. The second is doctrinal living. Truth matters. He says in verse one, for the sake of the elect, those chosen, and, 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 and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Do you see that? Doctrinal living. Knowledge of the truth. That's so vital. That's so vital. To my bones. I'm all for Christian counseling. I think I just got some people's attention. To my bones, I'm all for that. Every cell in my body, every fiber of my being, I'm 100%. I have no caveat to that. That's a period. I'm 100% for that. 
Do you want to know what I want to know? Do the sermons ever help you? Does your battle overcoming sin and temptation ever get any better because the sermon you heard last Sunday? Are you not looking at porn anymore because the sermon you heard last month? Is your relationship getting better? Are you not cheating on your taxes? Your marriage getting any better because of the preaching of the truth of the Bible? I'm not discounting a trillion other ways that our great and gracious and merciful God loves to bless his people. He's so benevolent. He's so generous. But I want to know, does knowing the truth, Paul drew a straight line, lead to what he called in this verse godliness, a lifestyle that pleases God? You can't please God if you don't know his word. You might accidentally do that. Again, God is gracious. But the knowing of the truth, and I'm going to connect it just in a second based on what Paul said, to preaching, should correspond over time to godliness. That's why you just need to be a member of a church that preaches the Bible for a long time. We need to hear it again and again and again and again and again and again and again. We forget the gospel every week. Got to come to this Lord's house on the Lord's day because we forget the gospel. We need it beat into our head weekly. That's why Luther said we have church every week according to God's plan. But it should actually show up in godliness. That's what verse 1 says. Jesus prayed, Father, will you please sanctify all my people in the truth? Your word is truth. In John 8, 32, Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. This is connected to preaching because Paul literally said in the passage, through the proclamation of his word. The word proclamation is the word for preaching. Through the announcing, the heralding, the declaring of the truth of God, if it's faithful to scripture, I'll let you be the judge of that. If it's faithful to scripture, and you know God more because of it, or you're reminded of something you knew but it's gotten out of focus, Paul said that should lead to godliness. Doctrinal living follows divine election. Third is heavenly hope. I love this in verse two, in the hope of eternal life. In the hope of eternal life. Such hope is the basis on which, New American Commentary said, such hope is the basis on which the superstructure of Christian service is built. All of our Christian life is built on hope. Not a hope so, like it might be true, but a solid hope. If you have solid hope, his name is Jesus. If you have Jesus, if you have hope in Jesus, not in this life, but according to that phrase, eternal life, hope of eternal life. If you have that hope in Christ, you're going where Jesus now is. Just like he rose from the dead, ascended to glory, seated at the Father's right hand, he's gonna bring you to God. If you have that hope, then that's the basis of godly living. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if we hope in Christ in this life only, where of all men most to be pitied. I did a devotion for my son's basketball team a month ago and I started with these words, do not follow Jesus. That was my opening. Hope I got their attention. And I said, unless he's raised from the dead. If you hope in Christ in this life only, people should feel sorry for you. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. Why was Paul so thankful for what Jesus was doing in the church at Colossae that he never visited? He never went there. He wrote him a letter and he said, oh, I'm so thankful for what God's doing in you. What did he say? Because I heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of, this is why, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, heavenly minded, seeking things above where Christ is. That's in Colossians, heavenly hope. This is just Paul saying, hello. All he said so far is basically, I'm a man of full surrender and I'm writing for the good of your soul. Divine election, doctrinal living, heavenly hope, and fourth, promises kept. Promises kept. 
Verse 2 says, in the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. He promised, verse 2, long ages ago. Verse 3, he manifested the confirmation that he kept his promise. Mark Dever says the Old Testament is basically about God making promises. The New Testament is basically about God showing that he keeps his promises. 2 Corinthians 1 says every promise God ever made, I love this verse, is yes in Christ Jesus. Jesus is God's yes to the universe, that he keeps all his promises. But do you see this little phrase? Verse 2 God who cannot lie. He not only will not, he cannot. He won't do it, that's a fact. But he won't do it because he will not violate his character and he will not violate his character because he's incapable. He cannot lie. He doesn't possess the capacity to be like us. He cannot lie. 1 Samuel 15, the glory of Israel, that's God, cannot lie. Numbers 23, God is not human that he should lie. Psalm 31, he is the God of truth. Romans 3, let God be true and every man be a liar. Like if you have to choose who's right, who's telling the truth, just assume every human who's ever lived is lying and God is telling the truth because Hebrews 6, 18, it is impossible for God to lie. There's your promise keeper. There's your heavenly hope. And the manifestation of God's promise came according to verse three through his word proclaimed about his son. It's our lifeline. The book reveals our savior. And the book reveals the life God intends for us to live for the pleasure of our God and for the profit of our soul. So the first thing was just Greetings in light of God's God-centered gospel. Hopefully you can see a little bit of why I would maybe title our first point that. The last point is just verse four. Greetings in light of God's gospel-purchased family. So first the greetings are in light of the God-centered gospel of God. The second point is the greetings come in light of God's blood-bought, gospel-purchased family. Just look at verse four and we'll close. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. I've really prayed that the Lord would help me to say it better or just clean up on all three. You know, you go to the grocery store and there's a big spill on all three. I just need God to either clean this up so that it can get to your soul or help me say it better. Some of you are lonely. Some of you feel like you're isolated. Some of you think nobody really, really cares about you. Some of you feel alone because of your station in life. Some of you feel alone even in a crowded room. Some of you wonder if other people love you, think about you, care about you, pray for you. Are they as invested in you as you are in them? We've been hiding since Genesis 3. We've been feeling alone since Adam and Eve went and hid behind a little bush in the Garden of Eden. Sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from each other. Some of that loneliness may be legitimate. I am not trying to explain away feeling alone unless you are a member of a church that belongs to Jesus. God can't lie. He can't do it. And I want to say to us, I'm speaking to my own soul now, don't fall into the trap of saying, how many times have I invited people to my place and nobody's invited me to their place? Don't start doing math with human logic. 
I said, unless you're a member of a church for which Jesus died, Acts 20 and Ephesians 5, both say Jesus did not only die for individual sinners, he did do that. He lays his life down for his friends. Acts 20 and Ephesians 5 say he gave his life for true churches. Acts 20, for which he shed his own blood. Ephesians 5, husband, love your wives as Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her. That's the church at Ephesus. If you belong to one of those, here's my point. Gospel greetings in light of God's gospel purchase family. I can imagine Titus might have felt a little, felt a little alone on the island of Crete with brand new churches that didn't even know how to find books in the Bible, much less what they were about. The whole island, according according to one of their people, are gluttons and lazy and drunkards. That's who he's surrounded by. He probably feels pretty alone. Unless, unless, his life is united to one of the churches for which Jesus died. This is where I want to speak. God help me. That's why I said, Lord, just clean this up because I'm actually working to change my intonation. <laughs> I'm not trying to sound preachy. Trying to just be a father. The church is not like a family. The church is a family. You are not alone. Your age, whether there's many years or few, your relationship status, divorcee, Happily married, single adult, young child. We are a people who are united to Christ deeper than biology can unite anyone. Many of you have lost immediate family members. You are closer to the people in this room than you are to your own siblings in that regard. When Mike and Lynn get on a plane and go to Ghana, meet some brothers and sisters in Christ and spend time with them. They are more united to those Ghanaians than they are to the people that live on their street. Look at the familial language. My true child. Paul wasn't married. Paul had no biological children. Titus didn't come from the womb of Paul's wife. And Titus is Paul's, verse 4, true child. Why? Most likely, he led him to faith in Christ. That's what that phrase probably alludes to. But deeper, whoever led him to Christ, that's irrelevant. The reason he's his true child is because they're united to the same heavenly father. They're in the same family. They're not alone. Paul in a jail cell, Titus on an island, they're not alone. Even the plural pronoun, Christ Jesus, our Savior. Together, we're in his family. We're both covered by his blood. We might have a lot of differences. There'll even be times where the enemy raises up his ugly head and creates friction between us. But that's not what defines us. Little blip of a radar on this side of eternity. We're going to battle with loneliness. We're going to battle with isolation. We're going to battle with wondering what other people think about us. We're going to battle if people love us. Yes, that's just part of living in a fallen world. Stop listening to yourself. Start preaching to yourself. Tell yourself the truth. You are loved. And I'm going to tell you something about all the people in the room that are Christians. I'm going to speak for one sentence to the members of this church. Every single member of this church would give their life for you. I haven't polled the audience. I'm telling you that's true. You can't be loved more. You are not alone. He comforts him as a Christian father. And he gives him care from the triune God. Grace and peace from God the Father. Christ Jesus, our Savior. He opens the letter with grace to you. He ends the letter, chapter 3, verse 15. Grace be with you. We said last time that's because grace comes to us through God's word, which is about God's son in context of God's family called the church. Grace to you, verse four. Grace be with you, the end of the book. 
Titus was serving Jesus on a Mediterranean island called Crete off the coast of modern day Greece and God was with him with all of his fatherly care. Grace to you from God the Father. God is with him. Christ Jesus is with him. Our Savior was right there with him as he walked and prayed the streets of that island. And he was with him with all of his grace and all of his peace. So greetings carry a lot of weight. Every culture has them. Every little subculture of our city has them. Special handshakes, special daps, ways to hug, go to different countries and people you've never met before would greet you with cheek kisses on both sides. Every culture has a way of greeting people, Christians also. When we greet one another, we may not say it every time, but we should be aware of this. There's massive things that are true about us. Most of all, we're loved by God. We're elected from eternity. Our faith is being fueled through an increasing knowledge of God. Our eyes are set on eternity so that we may live a godly life here and now. And we devote ourselves to the spread of God's good, God-centered gospel on places like the island of Crete where everybody's drunk all the time and pagan and they lie about everything they say. We go there because we want those people to get happy in God. And we can bank all of this life on promises that are signed and sealed in the blood of the risen Jesus. Every promise is yes in Jesus. So if you take a minute and just think about the Christians you know, ask yourself, what will they look like in glory? And when you talk with them on this side of eternity, greet them like you believe both of you are headed for that same eternal home. Join me in prayer. Oh, Father, I thank you, thank you for the way you weave your word together. Pray that our whole life will be saturated with Jesus. I want a life like that. I want a life like that. I pray that you would give us a church like that, just full of Jesus. Everything, full surrender in our own life, full blessing to the lives of the people around us by giving Christ to one another, helping each other grow in him. Let us be faithful. We ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.